Our scripture lesson today um, continues in the book of Acts in our sermon series. Today it's from Acts chapter 11. Let's share in God's good word together. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you now more than ever. When I first started ministry back in 1996, my first appointment back here in Oklahoma, there was a little house uh, that we used for our youth group. And in that house, there was a poster. And it said these words that I hope I never forget. Doing what is right is not always popular. Doing what is popular is not always right. And certainly that is true today. Doing what is right is not always popular. And doing what is popular is not always right. Think about the decisions that you've made this weekend. The the decisions you've made through the week. Were they the right decisions? Or were they popular decisions? Because so often... They can't be both. And this is true, especially in the church. And when we use the word church, church is not a place where we go. Church is who we are. It is the people of God on mission for the things of God, to bring heaven to earth, to make the crooked places straight, to lift up the brokenhearted and the fallen. Our job as a church is to engage culture without compromising the gospel. The people of God, we are to engage the world with the great news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the only Son of God, the one that has come to earth, has taught us how to live, and loved us so much that he would give his life for us. This is the good news for all people in all places and all times. We are to share the redemptive mission of God to the whole world through the work of Jesus. It's not something that we hold on for ourselves. It's something that we share. It's too good to hold on to. And that's the great thing about the love of God, that as we love one another, others are welcome into the family of faith. And so since church is something, uh, not a place that we go, but a people that we are, how do we incorporate this into our life? Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost in their book, The Shaping of Things to Come, uh, ask some questions that I want to share with you this morning. They're, they're really good, and, and, and I reflect on these, and I, I want to offer them up to you for you to reflect on as well. Um, here are the questions. What is the connection between your faith and your activities this weekend? When you look over the last number of days and, and your holiday festivities, how does that relate to you as a person of faith? How does the teaching of Jesus determine the things that you've been doing or will do in the coming week? How are your everyday activities shaped by Jesus or society? And, and it's easy to kind of set this up as a religious person to say, well, either you live full out for Jesus or you live for the society. But in my life and maybe in yours, it's sort of a both and. I'm doing my best to live for Jesus, but certainly um, the views of the world come into play. And I find myself sometimes battling back and forth or not even being aware of how I'm being shaped, not by Jesus in a certain moment, but by simply the people around me or the things that I'm reading. 
um, or um, the news outlets that I'm listening to or what I happen to look at on Facebook or on Instagram or by some other news feed. Jesus and society both shape us. And so we need to be careful about what we place in our minds, that we start our day every day, Bible before phone, Bible before everything else, so that we're reminded that we are children of God first, loved by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and saved by God's grace, by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so as we consider these things, what gaps do we have between our beliefs and our ways of life? I'm, I'm not proud of this, but it, it took me a number of years in ministry to figure out that what I did on my days off were just as important as the things I did at my work at the church. There's never a time, never a day where I'm not a follower of Jesus. And my witness is all day, every day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all of my life, when I'm working and when I'm resting, when I'm playing uh, and when I'm fully engaged in ministry, all of it, my entire life, my full self as a child of God is my witness to a hurting world. And then I want to end up with this last question. What happens when you follow God? Well, I would like to be able to tell you, um, just like any sort of Disney movie, that it all ends up great. And sometimes it does. And we celebrate that. And certainly in my life, uh, the more uh, God is in my life, the more I allow the Holy Spirit to direct me, some amazing and miraculous things happen that I could not ever pull off on my own. But it's also true that sometimes when we follow God, it brings trouble. And that's certainly what happened for Peter in the scripture we come to today. It says this, Now the apostles and believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Now, you'll remember that Jerusalem is in the heart of the country. He had gone over to Joppa on the west coast um, to visit um, a man named Cornelius and gone up to Caesarea to do that. But now he's returned from that trip. And the believers, um, these circumcised believers, uh, this is code for conservative Jewish Christians. At this time, it was still a sect within Judaism. It, it didn't have sort of its own way quite yet. It was, it was in the early days, the early years uh, of the church. And they were trying to decide who's in and who's out. What do you have to do really to follow Jesus? These were people who were circumcised. They followed the law and they were in. And they wanted to make sure the next people that got in were doing it the right way. And so Peter does what God asked him to do and does he get a medal for it? No. Does he get a reward for it? No. Does he get praised for it? No. He gets criticized. He's criticized by conservative Jewish Christians. The very people that are in the church, the, the very beginnings of the church. And, and as they tried to expand, Peter was criticized for doing exactly what God had asked him to do. And sometimes that's going to happen in your life as well. God calls you to do something and you think, wow, everybody's going to really rally around me. And they go, wow, that's not a big deal, or we don't think you should do that. I remember when Chantel and I were called to seminary back in 1993. We thought, wow, my employer's really going to celebrate uh, the fact that I've got this call on my life, and I'm going to go give up my job and, and spend the next three years in school and give my life to Jesus. And when I told my employer that I was quitting, he was not happy with me. He was actually pretty mad about it. And so sometimes when we follow Jesus, 
it's easy and fun and great, particularly in the early days, as the Holy Spirit encourages us. But as we mature in our faith, sometimes we get called to harder and harder things. And we can't expect that an unbelieving world, or even sometimes even a believing world, uh, will get on board with that or celebrate that with us. And so here's one thing that I learned um, the hard way in college, and that is this. That in college fraternity life, I learned you always have to watch out for the sophomores. Well, why do I say that? Well, because a sophomore is someone who just went through pledgeship, and they want to make sure absolutely sure that the new people, the new ones coming in, those freshmen that are coming in, they have to do everything that we just did and then some. If they're going to make it into our club, if they're going to be a member of our fraternity, then they better do it right and they got to do everything that we did. They can't miss out on any of it. You would never want to let somebody in that didn't, wasn't as committed as you were, hadn't done the things that you had done. You see, the seniors, they're just looking for work. They're, they're about to graduate and they're looking for a job. The juniors, They're too busy to to pay attention or to worry about it because they're often in leadership uh, at the university level, um, in clubs and in the fraternity. They're your presidents and vice presidents and and, and, and things like the house manager and the treasurer. It's the sophomores you got to watch out for. And unfortunately, I've I've seen that in the church, too. Some of the people that um, are really particular about what happens are people that are pretty young in their faith. And so they they haven't quite learned um, how to just know that God has it under control. And so we can relax a little bit and we can actually be more welcoming and and allow others in. And they don't have to do everything that we've done because we don't save ourselves by works. It's by grace. And if we've been saved by God's grace, then others can be saved by that grace as well. So the scripture says this, then Peter began to explain it to them step by step saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. And this changed everything, friends. What God has made clean, you must not, we must not call profane. This happened three times. And around here, we know that when something happens three times in the Bible, we're supposed to pay attention. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. And at that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. And the Spirit told me, He didn't just think this. The very Spirit of God tells Peter to go with them and to not make a distinction between them and us. So Peter does exactly what God wants him to do. He's criticized for it. And rather than arguing about it on Facebook, he simply tells the truth about what's happened to him. Peter doesn't argue. He gives his testimony. He says, this is what happened with me, with God. But not only that, Peter also validates his witness by six other people. You don't have to just take his word for it. There were six other men with him. And he says, just ask them. I don't have to argue about this. I'm just simply going to tell you what happened. And if you don't believe me, ask these guys. So the scripture says, these six brothers also accompanied me, meaning Peter there, and we entered the man's house. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us. At the beginning, on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And I remembered the word of the Lord. And and this is how the Spirit works. Jesus says, I'm going to send you the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to remind you of everything that I've taught you, everything that is of me. It's the same Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all one God. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? And friends, who are we? that we would hinder God. When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. And these Gentiles were simply people that were not Jewish. They were outside the faith. And and it really blew their mind that the Holy Spirit could work outside what they had learned growing up. But yet the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us, Peter says. You see, with the Holy Spirit in charge, there is no longer them and us. Hear that, friends. With God, there's no longer them and us. It's simply we. It's us. It's family. It's God's children. Every place, every time, every tribe, every nation. With the Holy Spirit in charge, there's no longer them and us, but silence in the presence of Almighty God. And after the silence and the reverence comes the praise and the unity of God's children. You see, the church celebrates the good wherever we find it. The church is the people of God on mission, on what God wants done is done. We are people who bring heaven to earth. The church celebrates the good. The good is where God is. If you see something good, God's involved in it because God is good. How often? All the time. And all the time, God is good. So if it's good, it's of God. And so when we see it, whether it's in the church house or whether it's in your home or it's in your neighborhood or it's across the sea, we celebrate good when we see it. That's what the church does. We call it out wherever we find it and we say God is good. See where God is working and we celebrate that wherever that might be. And this is so important. This change in understanding where the good is where God is. It's so important that Luke relates this story twice in full on papyrus. So at this point, you might be saying, didn't you preach on this last week? Well, yeah, it's in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. But then Peter recounts the entire story again in Acts chapter 11 because it's that important. And the gospel writer of Luke and Acts thinks it's so important that he writes it down again. Now, remember, he's not on Microsoft Word cutting and pasting and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to tell it again. And he doesn't even have a printing press where it would take days or weeks or months where you would actually have to set the letters and then, you know, use a printing press. No, no, no. He has papyrus, which is sort of like bark off of a tree and and some ink. And so he has to write it down by hand twice, the full story. And if you were to write the book of Acts um, on papyrus, it would be 35 feet long. This was no small task. This was a huge undertaking, and it was so important because it was a turning point of the church. Friends, we forget how easily our church could have never existed. We we could have simply been uh, just another sect within Judaism, and the worldwide church as we know it would have never come into existence if it weren't for Acts chapters 10 and 11. 
We are never to take this for granted. It is the turning point of the church, the worldwide church. So he he writes it down fully. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene. That's all we know about them. Some men. They're nameless. We just know where they're from. Who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, um, these Jewish folks who would have picked up Greek culture and language, and they were proclaiming the Lord Jesus. And so if you look here on the map, uh, Jerusalem is here. Uh, Peter has traveled over to Joppa, which would be over here um, on the coast, uh, and he's going to travel up to Caesarea to visit Cornelius. He's going to come back down um, all the way back to Jerusalem to report what's been going on uh, at the heart of the nation. And they asked him, what did you do? He told them. They criticized him for it. And then they head up to Antioch. Wow. That's 300 miles. It's not just a day or two journey. 300 miles. Um, Otherwise, the Joppa to Caesarea, that's only 34 miles. So it's 10 times what he's done. But now they're all the way up into what would be Syria um, at the third largest city Uh, at that time. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. So God is on the move. People are coming to the Lord. They're finding Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. The Holy Spirit is coming upon them, and there is real power and change in their lives and the lives of those around them. And for the first time, the church took the initiative to preach the good news of Jesus to Gentiles. Now, in Acts chapter 10, It's Cornelius of the Italian cohort that goes to Peter and says, Hey, tell me about this Jesus. What's going on? I want to know. But it was the people outside the faith coming to those in the faith and saying, Teach us. Now, this is the first time in chapter 11 where the church on its own is taking initiative to take the good news, the gospel of Jesus, outside of what they were used to. William Barclay says, It has always been one of the tragedies of the church that people have wanted to be noticed and named when they did something worthwhile. This is the beautiful thing about the Spirit moving now. All we know about these men is that some men, that's all we know about them, some men, they're not even named, and yet they changed the world. The first witnesses um, taking initiative to people outside the Jewish faith. So he says, it's always been one of the tragedies of the church that people have wanted to be noticed and named when they did something worthwhile. And he continues on, he says, What the church has always needed, perhaps more than anything else, is people who never care who gains the credit for it as long as the work is done. And that's what you find in the book of Acts chapter 11. These faithful witnesses change the world and we don't even know their name. And friends, there are things that God may be calling you to do. People may never know about it, but it can change somebody's world. When the Spirit says move, Move, go with God, and change the world. So they go to Antioch, the third largest city at the time in the entire world after Rome and Alexandria. And this was not a wholesome city. Antioch was known for luxurious immorality and a deliberate pursuit of pleasure night and day. It was the original city that never sleeps. It was New York or L.A. or Paris or Corinth combined. Antioch was a place where uh, you didn't think of wholesome things. You didn't think of the things of God. You thought of 
like many coastal cities where you partied all night and you partied all day uh, and people didn't care much about the things of God. And yet somehow the people there were receptive. Their hearts were open to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit began to move in big and wonderful and wondrous ways there and around the world. And we'll find out um, in the weeks to come that it is in this place where Christians were first named. Followers of Christ, little Christs, Christians. The term had not been used until Antioch. And news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to check it out. They're like, what? God is moving in Antioch? Like, how can that be? And they're like, we better, we better check this out. So they send Barnabas the 300 miles north to check it out. And here's the thing. We, we might think of this as like, oh, you know, people are really being, uh, you know, sort of naysayers and, you know, this isn't good. But no, no, no. Look at the accountability, friends. This is an important piece. Trust, but verify. I know many of you have heard that before. Say that with me. Trust, but verify. The church, as the people of God, needs accountability. Whenever we're in a position of sharing the good news of Jesus, the most important news of all the world, we need to do it properly. We need to do it in right ways that are loving and kind and appropriate and true and accurate. And so they send Barnabas. And what happens when Barnabas gets there? Well, when he came and saw the grace of God moving, he rejoiced and he exhorted them all. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. And so he went up to check it out and man, he was blown away at the things that he saw. And he rejoiced and he encouraged them. You see, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he rejoiced and encouraged the new believers. And he didn't just encourage them in a, in a broad way. He encouraged them to remain faithful to Jesus. And this is who Barnabas was. I want to lift him up as a model for us to be, for each and every one of us, to think about if someone could say about these things in our life. It says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Friends, wouldn't that be awesome if you were described as good? If you were full of the Holy, Holy Spirit. It's not about you. It's about God working in and through you. And a person of faith. Relying not on your own strengths and talents, but of Jesus and his power and resurrection in your life. Barnabas is described as good. Full of the Holy Spirit and a person of faith. And so your action step this week, I hope you'll join with me in rejoicing in what God is doing. Rejoice in the grace of God. And encourage those around you to remain faithful to Jesus, to remain faithful to their faith, to be encouragers as well, to lift others up, to be people of unity and reconciliation, of silence before a holy God, of praise before a holy God, and of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ here and all around the world. In Jesus' mighty name. Will you do that with me? I hope you will. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.